Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have real, honest, smart, and sometimes even hilarious conversations about co-parenting, separation, and divorce, and all that goes along with that. I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, Certified Life and Relationship Coach, and Happily Divorced Mom, who helps women decide if they should stay in or leave their marriages, and then guides them through the process one step at a time. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am really grateful for your listenership and your time. I hope everyone had a good Mother's Day. (laughs) Um, I wanted to take a few minutes to tell you about mine because I want to hold it up as what's possible in the future. Uh, As many of you know, my marriage to my ex was a goddamn nightmare. It was toxic and often nasty, and it was just a really unhappy and unhealthy marriage all around. And our first, first few Mother's Day were, they were weird. Um, we would have brunch or he'd bring me flowers. And, you know, my ex has always gone out of his way to acknowledge me as a mother. Uh, But over time, as he was dating and later married his wife, I felt like I really got shafted on Mother's Day. Uh, One year he had my son and he didn't have my son call me. One year, his wife, who isn't the biological mom of any of his kids, but has definitely taken on a lot as a stepmom of two of my ex's children, uh, she got a huge bouquet of flowers and I got nothing. One year, he texted me, Happy Mother's Day at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and one year, I was coming home. Um, I had been in New York and San Francisco for almost two weeks. Uh, I was in New York for the death of my oldest friend in the world and San Francisco for an advanced coach training course. And as I sat in the airport on Saturday night before Mother's Day, waiting for my delayed flight to finally come home, I was utterly exhausted, bereft, and depleted. Uh, So I texted my husband and I asked what the plans were for Mother's Day the next day. And he was shocked. He'd made no plans, and he couldn't see why he was responsible for doing so. Uh, He even went so far as to ask why my boyfriend, at the time, hadn't made plans for me. And I hit the roof. I fired back a bunch of texts about, you know, I'm I'm the mother of your child, and why should I have to plan a day designed to celebrate me, and, you know, that that I wasn't the mother of any of my boyfriend's three children, and that I'd been away for almost two weeks, and my best friend was dead, and why couldn't he have just made a goddamn reservation for breakfast? And as I'm going through this, I realize what was going on. I was, as I said, I had just been coming home from a coach, an advanced coach training weekend, and I, we had been studying uh, roles and what's called role confusion. And I suddenly realized that my ex wasn't sure what his role was supposed to be anymore, and that I had an expectation of him being in a role to which he was perhaps no longer suited. I don't know. The point is that we had never designed this together. And when you're dealing with roles in divorce, in particular, design is critical. So this year, I took it upon myself. I'm also the person who plans her own birthday party because I don't want to be disappointed. So I sent my ex and his wife a text and I said, hey guys, can we talk about Mother's Day? How would you feel about us all going out to breakfast together? 
And you have to know that my ex and his wife and I have gotten a lot closer in the last year due to a lot of dramatic and traumatic events that have occurred in our family. And at this point, we have been in hospitals and courtrooms together more often than I can count. And when your family is being attacked by outside forces, when your family, your family unit is under siege, it tends to fortify the members of the family. No matter how much water has rushed under the family bridge, at this point, we're pretty fucking strong. So my request wasn't out of left field, but it didn't, but it did have to come from me. And my request was actually an act of radical self-care. I knew that if I didn't make this request, I may have gotten to borrow my son for the morning because it was my son's weekend with my ex and my ex would have dropped off a card, but really I'm not sure it would have felt like enough for me. So I wanted to, I, I needed to ask for what I wanted. So I made the request and they accepted. And my mom and my ex and his wife and our collective three children all went out for breakfast together. And it was truly lovely. And I tell you this to hold up what a decade's worth of hard work can yield. Because only two years ago, my ex's wife wasn't even speaking to me. But we've all done a shitload of work in therapy and coaching with a good side of family drama to expedite the process. And it's gotten us to this point. And this is what I want for you. This is the vision that I hold for the world at large, for divorce at large, that we can all work through our resentments and our pain so that we can show up as a family, whatever that looks like for our children. When my ex and I got divorced, we told our son that we would always be a family. And we've worked really hard to make that true for him. And I want that to be true for your kids too. So now that that's out of the way, today's episode is not about Mother's Day. It's about holding strong boundaries when telling your spouse that you want a divorce. In this episode, I lay out how I work with clients to prepare for this really difficult conversation, how not to allow your spouse to hijack and control the narrative, and how to take responsibility for things you know aren't yours, even when your ex insists they are, how not to take responsibility for them, how to not take responsibility for things that you know aren't yours, even when your ex insists that they are. very specific happens when you set boundaries with people in your life. And usually it's not that they immediately honor them. Generally speaking, when we set brand new boundaries with people, they don't like them. And usually they try to test them. This is human nature. If you have kids, you see it every day. As soon as you set a boundary with your kids, they'll immediately try to test it. It doesn't matter if they're two or 12. And the same goes for adults. Whether it's your parents or your partner, as soon as you set a boundary, they're going to push against it. Do you really mean it? Are you fucking serious? If I push a little bit harder, will this hold? And the thing is that we all, the, the thing that we all have wrong about boundaries is that we think our boundaries are for other people to honor, but they're not. They're for us to honor, for ourselves. They're our boundaries. When we say, oh my God, my mom has no boundaries, what we mean is, I have no boundaries with my mother. Your mother may try to push your boundaries, but they're your boundaries. 
The analogy I use with clients is that expecting other people to set boundaries for us is like having a house deep in the woods and expecting the bears and the deer to build a fence around it for us. It's our job to build the fence. And when the bear tries to tear it down the next day because he really wants the fish in the pond your fence is protecting, it's our job to fix it, to find out where the weak spots are and to fortify our brand new fence with stronger materials so the bear can't get in the next night and the next night and the next night until finally the bear goes and tries to find another pond with different fish and stops coming around altogether. When we're working on shifting dynamics in our marriages, it's exactly the same, especially if you're trying to end your marriage. Telling your spouse that you want to leave is setting one of the biggest boundaries there is, and the likelihood is that they're not going to just say, oh, okay, cool, that makes sense. No, you're going to have to be fully prepared for what happens next. It could be rage. It could be begging or crying and then rage. You can count on all the stages of grief coming after you drop the bomb, which would be completely natural, of course. And whether your spouse knows this is coming or not, even if you've been expressing your unhappiness for months or years, the moment you finally say, no, enough, I'm done, everything changes. And if you're the one doing the telling, if you're the one making the decision, you should be prepared to hold space for whatever comes next in the conversation. And a lot of that is going to be about setting and holding your boundaries. When I work with private clients who are ready to have this life-changing conversation, we've already done a lot of work together. We've already worked through a lot of the resentments that have built up over the years. They've taken personal responsibility for the way they showed up in their marriage that may have contributed to its demise. Before my clients walk into this conversation, they've turned over a lot of rocks. They're no longer in blame, and mostly they're no longer angry. Usually, and ideally, they've come to a place of great compassion, both for themselves and their spouses. I truly believe that the path to a collaborative divorce process is through personal responsibility. So when I work with clients, that is a huge piece of what I do. So when my clients are ready to have this conversation, I guide them through it step by step. What do you want to say? And what do you think he'll say to that? And what do you want to say to that? And I advise them to hold their boundaries, as my good friend Amy Smith says, with grace and kindness. To have compassion for their pain. To always acknowledge them. To use as much empathy as they can muster. To say things like, I am so sorry you're hurt. I understand you're angry. I know this may feel like a shock. And to acknowledge them as a parent, if you mean it, right? Say something like, you're an amazing father, and I wouldn't want to co-parent with anyone else. It's really important to me that we try to move through this as collaboratively as possible for the sake of our children. This isn't always possible. Sometimes shit has already gone so far off the rails that a reasoned conversation isn't possible. And yes, what I'm talking about is an ideal. This is what we want to strive for. But even if things have already gone terribly badly... Uh, Another important way to hold boundaries is to not allow another person to hijack or control the narrative. So, and this applies for whether things go badly or well. So when you tell your spouse that you want a divorce and they start going on and on about all the shit you've done wrong and 
rather than start to defend yourself or go along with this shift in narrative, because that's really what that is, you can say, I hear you. And a lot of what you're saying is true. I bear a large piece of the responsibility here. And someday we'll sit down and go over all of it so that we can both get closure and clarity. I understand that you're angry and you may be wanting to hurt me right now. So maybe we should table this and come back to it maybe when we're in therapy or after you've taken a walk around the block. Whatever you need to say to return the narrative to what's at hand, which is that you want a divorce and you want it to go as smoothly as possible for the sake of your children. That should be the baseline that you return to over and over again in the course of this conversation. Empathy, compassion, acknowledgement, and a return to the narrative. Rinse and repeat. And the narrative should always be that you want it to go as smoothly as possible for the sake of your children. And part of setting boundaries is repeating the narrative that you've set out. So when you tell your mother that you really don't want her to call you before 8 a.m. on Saturday mornings and she keeps doing it, and every time you tell her not to, she goes on and on about the reasons that she needs to, and you start to argue each reason, explaining why it's not in fact necessary for her to call before 8 a.m. for each of those points, she's hijacked the narrative and she's controlling it and you're having her conversation. But if instead you say, I understand that seems important to you, mom, but I still need to ask that you don't call me before 8 a.m. on Saturdays. And when she goes back to her narrative about why it's so important, you repeat, I understand that it seems important to you to call me before 8 a.m. And I really do want to talk to you today, but I still need to ask that you don't call me before 8 a.m. on Saturdays. So in this way, you remain in control of the narrative. And eventually she'll realize her arguments don't hold up within the context of your narrative. Or she won't. But eventually she'll stop calling you before 8 a.m. on Saturdays. And you may have to fortify this boundary for six months before she finally gets it. But eventually that boundary will be firmly in place. But if you get sucked into the vortex of her narrative, you will literally never set that boundary. So similarly, when you tell your spouse that you want a divorce they'll very likely try to take control of the narrative. Not on purpose, they're just shocked and in pain. But if you allow their shock and pain to control the narrative, you'll never get through the conversation. And it might take multiple tries at having this conversation before you actually get anywhere. But if you hold firmly to your boundaries and your narrative, you'll eventually get somewhere. There's a saying in Al-Anon, which is the 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics, which is that the Al-Anon sets the tone, which means that in the face of other people's irrationality, you are always able to set and hold the tone that you want. And here's the thing, for people in Al-Anon who are traditionally the very embodiment of codependence, who allow other people to set the tone and control the narrative by definition, this sounds and feels like an impossible task. Trust me, I'd know. But if you've gone through the heavy lifting of taking a deep inventory of your marriage such that you can really hold what's yours and gracefully and lovingly reject taking responsibility for what's simply not, you'll be able to set a collaborative tone. It won't be easy. You'll be rebuilding that fence over and over again while a really smart, strong, and cunning bear is trying to tear it down. But you are capable. If you prepare yourself with all the right tools, you will be able to set a tone that is loving and collaborative. 
One note about not taking responsibility for what's not yours. If you've worked past blame, but your partner hasn't, if you know that they're blaming you for something that you didn't do or trying to make you responsible for something that you know in your heart just isn't yours to hold, there's really no reason to be defensive about it. And actually, defensiveness is another form of having them control the narrative. So imagine someone telling you that you have green hair when you clearly do not. You wouldn't rage at them or get defensive. You just look at them and say, uh, no, I actually don't. And it literally wouldn't be a conversation. And if they continued insisting that you have green hair, you might say, God, you know, it's so interesting that that's your experience. That is totally not my experience. And then you might walk away thinking, what the fuck? But you probably wouldn't engage in a war of the roses trying to convince them that your hair isn't fucking green. So consider that it's the same for whatever your ex may want to lay on you. If you know in your heart who you are and what you're responsible for, anything they try to heap on you, you can walk away from clearly and lovingly. And P.S. You're divorcing them, so really, who fucking cares? Which brings me to another point that I work with clients on a lot. At this stage, um, it, it's this idea that they're about wanting agreement, right? At this stage, there there may be no agreement whatsoever. At the end of this conversation, you will both have your own story. At the end of this process, you'll both have your own story. And by definition, you'll each be the hero in your own story because that's how it works. So thinking that you'll get agreement on what the story is, is really not worth the effort. That's one narrative that you won't be able to control. And you'll have to find some peace with that. Even when your ex starts bad-mouthing you to friends and family. And if that happens, you can respond with something like, I'm really sorry that he's saying that about me. It's not true, but I'm not going to stoop to his level and start bad-mouthing him to you. And eventually those people will start to recognize who the bigger person is. And by the way, totally have your people that you can bad-mouth your ex to. But keep that circle small because your kids will get whiffs of it. And you never want to be the one bad-mouthing the other parent in front of the kids. All right. I think that covers boundaries throughout this really difficult conversation. And I hope you got something out of this episode and this conversation. And hey, if you like this podcast, if it speaks to you and you get value out of it, I would love it if you'd hop over to iTunes and leave a review. Uh, And also feel free to hop over on Instagram and follow me at Coach Kate Anthony, where I post information and inspiration all about divorce. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. You can find me over at kateanthony.com and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.